0: This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Good afternoon, and welcome to Falvey Memorial Library. My name is Jeff Eisenberg, and I am the Programming and Outreach Graduate Assistant here in Falvey. On behalf of Joe Lucia, our Library Director, and the entire staff here at Falvey, I'd like to welcome you to our annual Pope John Paul II Legacy Lecture. Though this spring semester has only one month to go, I'd like to also take this opportunity to invite you to the many programs we'll host over the coming month. Next Tuesday, April 10th, you can join us for a poetry reading by Dilruba Ahmed. Then on Thursday, April 12th, we'll host an Earth Day book talk, followed by a faculty book talk by communication professor Dr. Brian Crable. Later in the month, on April 27th, we'll also welcome this year's Falvey Scholars a group of outstanding seniors selected each year to present their research here in the library. Information on these and all of our events can be found on our website, which is library.villanova.edu. But to refocus on today, Falvey hosts a speaker each year to commemorate the life and work of Pope John Paul II during this Lenten season. For this year's lecture, we welcome Dr. John Cruci. Assistant Professor of Theological Studies at nearby Newman University. Dr. Cruci joins us today to discuss his book, Lent and Easter Wisdom from Pope John Paul II. The book features the late Pope's thought-provoking words, leading readers through a journey of conversion throughout the season. As Dr. Cruci himself says, his book and lecture Look to the inspiring writings of Pope John Paul II to lead to deeper reflection on life and faith this Lenten season. Please welcome Dr. Krusey.
1: Thank you all for coming out this afternoon. Uh, thank you to the library staff and to Eugena for inviting me I'm in the last throes of a cold, so if you cannot hear me in the back, please, please let me know. As I begin, I would like to share with you my personal connection to John Paul II and explain why I think he serves as an excellent companion on our Lenten journey. First a little bit about me. I grew up in a small Protestant town in Indiana. My family was literally the first Catholic family to move to this town. And as I was growing up, I was often called upon to defend my faith. And I can remember my second grade teacher asking me to explain who the pope was. There was an exercise of rhyming words, bro, so, pope. And I remember, John, why don't you explain to the class who the pope is? I remember when Paul VI died. I was 11 years old. I remember classmates asking me if I was going to cry because I was Catholic. I remember my mother walking in and telling me that John Paul I had died and anxiously waiting around the television, waiting for the white smoke. And I was so excited that the Pope who was uh, elected was a non-Italian. Like many young people at at my age at that time, I was drawn to the deep, warm faith, the smile, the charismatic personality of this relatively young Pope. I wasn't normal in the sense I had a John Paul II calendar in my room. I was a groupie. I wanted to go see him during his first visit to the United States and wasn't able but during my undergraduate studies I had the opportunity to study in Rome and to attend a number of audiences and liturgies with the Pope and I actually had the opportunity to have a short conversation with him but that's another story we'll have to say. I was able to uh, attend two masses during his later visits uh, to Central Park and to St. Louis took a group of high school students. I was teaching at an all-girls uh, Catholic school in Cincinnati uh, out to uh, New York to see him, uh, and a group of college students from Miami University in Ohio uh, to St. Louis to see him. And he does, or he did have a, an aura around him that's very hard to describe, regardless of one's views towards his teaching. I mean, I, I literally saw the toughest college students break down in tears just by being in his presence. While today my understanding of John Paul II is not as idealistic as that of my youth, I still have great admiration for him and perhaps have come to a deeper appreciation of him not only as a pope but as a human being with all the graces and baggage that come with being human. When I was asked to write a book by Liguori Publications, I was finishing my Ph.D. program. To write the book on uh, John Paul II and his writings in relationship to uh, Lenten Easter themes, it was definitely a transforming experience for me. Looking over his works to write that book, and then looking over a number of, of, of his works for this, preparation, for this presentation, I was again struck by the depth and genuine beauty of his writing. It was as if I could once again hear him speaking. I could hear his voice. And he did have a particular manner of probing the depths and the beauty of the faith, like few others in the modern magisterium of the church have today. Again, regardless of one's theological or ecclesiological perspectives. Again, I don't know quite how to describe it, but even his writings have a certain aura about them. What's the connection of John Paul II with Lent? First, a little lighthearted reference to my own associations with Lent. As an undergraduate at the University of Dayton in the late 1980s, um, as part of an activity that was somewhat reflective of the church at the time, at one mass in the main chapel, the campus ministry team passed out buttons that said Lent is, and then we had black markers where we could fill in what Lent was. And we had such profound statements as Lent is forgiveness, Lent is conversion, However, my my favorite will always be Lent is Judas' fault. (laughs) They were the 80s in the church. It was a different time. I have to admit I have not always been really comfortable with Lent. I have sometimes seen it as depressing, as a depressing and yet necessary season on the liturgical calendar. With greater and lesser degrees of success, depending on the year and the stage in my life, I've tried to use Lent as an opportunity to go deeper in my faith relationship with God to examine what's going on in my life, in my heart. Writing the book and preparing for this presentation near the end of Lent have helped me to do this. As I have stated, I think John Paul II could be a most helpful companion on our Lenten journey. This is especially true given the witness of the last months of his life. As you might remember, John Paul's health was in precipitous decline during his last Lent in the spring of 2005 as the effects of Parkinson's disease took an ever increasing toll. I do believe that during this time, John Paul II modeled what he had preached. He took up and embraced his own cross and let that transform his relationship with God. But he did this with a confidence that the resurrection defeated pain, suffering, and death once and for all. For my presentation this afternoon, I'd like to focus on five interrelated Lenten themes that I see as surfacing in the writings of John Paul II. Taking up one's cross. Swimming against the current. The theme of suffering. The theme of conversion. And finally, the theme of victory. So I'll be hitting these uh, one at a time Introducing various quotes from the writings of John Paul II. And at the end of each topic, I'd like to offer just a short reflection. So, first of all, taking up one's cross. Throughout his writings, John Paul indicates that the path of Christian discipleship is the path taken by Christ. We must make the free choice to follow the way of the cross which involves the laying down of our lives in loving service to others. In his message for the 16th World Youth Day in 2001, John Paul states, quote, Jesus walks ahead of his followers and asks each one to do as he himself has done. He says, I am not come to be served, but to serve. So whoever wants to be like me must be the servant of everyone. I have come to you as one who possesses nothing. For this reason, I can ask you to leave all riches behind which prevent you from entering the kingdom of heaven. I accept denial and rejection by most of my people. Therefore, I can ask you to accept denial and opposition from wherever it comes. In other words, Jesus asked that we courageously choose the same path we have to choose it from our hearts because external situations do not depend on us. Insofar as it is possible, the will to be as obedient as he was to the Father and to be ready to accept the plan which he has for each person right to the end depends on each one of us. The way of the cross is not just for those we would recognize as saints or holy people. Christianity calls all of us to this great feat. This is our vocation, this is our baptismal call. It happens to be a concept that I find that my students at Newman have a hard time coming to grips with. They can see holiness, which is a matter of responding to God's call, wherever we are in our life, as a matter for some pious people out there somewhere But it takes some real getting used to to really take to heart that God calls you and me to greatness. One might ask why God wants this path for each one of us. John Paul II points out that the way of the cross is the way to genuine freedom. Jesus quite literally is the truth that sets us free. This is not the world, this is not the freedom that the world offers which from John Paul II's perspective, the world often understands freedom as the ability to do whatever one wants. In his first encyclical, Redemptor Hominis, John Paul II states, quote, Jesus Christ meets the man of every age, including our own, with the same words. Quote, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free, from John 8, 32. These words contain both a fundamental requirement and a warning, the requirement of an honest relationship with regard to truth as a condition for authentic freedom, and the warning to avoid every kind of illusory freedom, every superficial unilateral freedom, every freedom that fails to enter into the whole truth about man and the world. Today also, even after 2,000 years, we see Christ as the one who brings man freedom based on truth, frees man from what pertails, diminishes, and as it were, breaks off this freedom at its root, in man's soul, his heart, and his conscience. What a stupendous confirmation of this has been given and is still being given by those who, thanks to Christ and in Christ, have reached true freedom and have manifested it even in situations of external constraint. So one might not be physically free, but in Christ one could be authentically free. One must note that John Paul II doesn't sugarcoat the challenge of taking up the cross. It is not the easy path, but it is the path to life, life beyond anything the world, the way of the world could ever offer. Again, in his 2001 message to World Youth Day, he states, quote, There is a widespread culture of the ephemeral that attaches value to whatever is pleasing or beautiful, and it would like us to believe that it is necessary to remove the cross in order to be happy. The ideal presented is one of instant success, a fast career, sexuality separated from any sense of responsibility, and ultimately an an existence centered on self-affirmation, often bereft of respect for others. Open your eyes and observe well. This is not the road that leads to true life, but it is the path that sinks into death. Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Jesus leaves us under no illusions. From, again from Luke chapter 9, what profit is there for one to gain the whole world, yet lose or forfeit himself? With the truth of his words that sound hard but fill the heart with peace, Jesus reveals the secret of how to live a true life." Unquote. In short, John Paul II argues that we must lose ourselves to find our real selves in real meaning and value in Christ. Again, from his first encyclical, Redemptor Hominis, John Paul states, The one who wishes to understand himself must draw near to Christ. He must, so to speak, enter into him with all of his own self. He must appropriate and assimilate the whole of the reality of the incarnation and redemption in order to find himself. If this profound process takes place within him, he then bears fruit not only of adoration of God, but also of deep wonder at himself how precious man must be in the eyes of the creator if he gained so great a redeemer, and if God gave his only son in order that man should not perish but have e- eternal life." Unquote. As part of a reflection on this theme of taking up one's cross. Back at Newman, I start each semester of my Theological Foundations class. Everybody's required to take Theo uh, 104 at Newman. I always start out the semester by asking students what are the big questions of life that all people of every generation, culture, and faith tradition ask. Their responses are such things as, why do bad things happen to good people? What happens when we die? Or one that I find particularly significant, what will lead to a purposeful, meaningful life worth living? As someone of middle, middle age, I find myself asking this question more and more as I look both backward and forward? How should I live so that I can look back on my life from my deathbed and say, ah, that was a life worth living? John Paul has an answer for the question. Like Christ, we must lay down our lives in service to others. The way of the cross is the path to genuine freedom in life. It is where we most profoundly find our true identity and real value in life. It is the path to a life worth living. So to move on to the second theme of swimming swimming against the current. We can already, already detect that John Paul II clearly recognizes that to take up the cross is to swim against the current in our modern world. To take up our cross is to follow a path that will not make sense to others around us. The way that the world defines success, power, fulfillment, satisfaction, and freedom are not the way these terms are understood through the lens of the life of Christ. Again, from his World Youth Day message of 2001, John Paul II states For this occasion, I invite you to reflect on the conditions that Jesus asked of those who want to be his disciples. From Luke chapter 9. If anyone wishes to come after me, he said he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus is not a Messiah of triumph and power. In fact, he did not free Israel from Roman rule, and he never assured it of political glory. As a true servant of the Lord, he carried out his mission in solidarity, in service, and in the humiliation of death. He is the Messiah who did not fit into any mold, and who came without fanfare, and who cannot be understood with the logic of success and power, the kind of logic often used by the world to verify its projects and actions. While talking about taking up one, our own crosses, I have mentioned how John Paul II states that this is the path to freedom. Another part of this freedom is living under the law of God, in contrast to embracing the values of society. God's law is not some kind of burden imposed by an arbitrary God. I like to ask my students when we're looking at the Old Testament and the story of Moses and the Israelites crossing the desert, why did God give the Israelites the law? I said it wasn't to constrain them um, or to limit them, but it was to lead them to life, to lead them to fullness, to lead them to freedom. Following Christ and God's law leads to freedom, life, and love. In his encyclical Veritatis Splendor, John Paul II states, quote, those who live by the flesh experience God's law as a burden and indeed as a denial or at least a restriction of their own freedom. On the other hand, those who are impelled by love and walk, in, walk by the spirit and who desire to serve others find in God's law the fundamental and necessary way in which to practice love as something freely chosen and freely lived out. Indeed, they feel an interior urge, a genuine necessity, and no longer a form of coercion, not to stop at the minimum demands of the law, but to live them in their fullness. This is is a, is a still uncertain and fragile journey as long as we are on earth, but it is one made possible by grace, which enables us to possess the full freedom of the children of God and thus to live our moral life in a way worthy of our sublime vocation as sons and daughters in the sun." John Paul II encourages us not to get trapped up in the snares of worldly values. In his message to to the youth on the occasion of the 20th World Youth Day in 2005, he states, do not yield to false illusions and passing fads which frequently leave behind a tragic spiritual vacuum. Reject, reject the seduction of wealth, consumerism, and the subtle violence sometimes used by the mass media. Worshiping the true God is an authentic act of resistance to all form of idolatry. Worship Christ. He is the rock in which to build your future in a world of greater justice and solidarity. Jesus is the Prince of Peace, the source of forgiveness and reconciliation, who can make brothers and sisters of all the members of the human family. Again, going against the tide, which is part of going against the current, or going against the tide is part of taking up one's cross, it's not easy. But it is the only way to genuine satisfaction and happiness. In this message for the 18th World Youth Day in 2003, John Paul II states Only Jesus knows what is in your hearts and your deepest desires. Only He who has loved you to the end can fulfill your aspirations. His are words of of eternal life, words that give meaning to life. No one apart from Christ can give you true happiness. By following the example of Mary, you should know how to give him your unconditional yes. There is no place in your lives for selfishness or laziness. Now more than ever, it is crucial that you be watchers of the dawn, the lookouts who announce the light of dawn in the new springtime of the gospel, of which the buds can already be seen. Humanity is in urgent need of the witness of free and courageous people who dare to go against the tide and proclaim with vigor and enthusiasm their personal faith in God, Lord and Savior. You are also aware, my dear friends, that this mission is not easy. It becomes absolutely impossible if one counts only on oneself. But, and then quoting from the Gospel of Luke, what is impossible with men is possible for God, unquote as a reflection on this second point. At first hearing, John Paul II might appear to have had an overly pessimistic view of the world. For sure, not all of his experience in the world were positive. He lived through the brutal Nazi occupation of his native Poland in the subsequent period of communist oppression. John Paul II matured in a persecuted church that had had to set itself apart from and against oppressive regimes that very much threatened the Church and that stood against the very heart of the message of Christ. I definitely don't think John Paul II was anti-world. After all, Catholicism is an incarnational faith. The world is where we encounter God. And John Paul II did emphasize finding God in our own experiences. But John Paul does challenge our own stances towards the values values of the world, like Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount he's asking us where our treasure lies what are we putting our faith in in class back at Newman, I defined faith as or ask questions to, to get at the, the essence of faith what am I betting my life on or I let my students know I like roulette um, guilty guilty pleasure I ask What are you putting your chips of your life on? What are you counting on to come come through for you? Or what would be the last thing in your life you'd ever let go of? That's where your faith lies. Am I betting on the sometimes prevailing attitudes and values of our society that hold that watching out for number one, seeking personal pleasure and consumption of goods provide the path to fulfillment? John Paul II reminds us that these are empty promises that only ultimately leave us unsatisfied. I'm always reminded of um, a trip I had, my parents live back in Indiana still, and I was flying home with a friend of no particular faith orientation. You know, I don't know if he would define himself as an agnostic or an atheist, but um, we were flying and we hit some really, really, really bad turbulence, and, uh, and Not the kind of turbulence where things would start shaking, but things were kind of flying through the air. People were screaming turbulence. And my friend turned to me, he said, I'm not ready to die. And I thought, as a theology professor, I thought, oh, maybe we're going to have a breakthrough moment here. Um, He said, I haven't haven't got a Bentley yet. That was literally his, his response. I haven't gotten a Bentley yet. Placing his things in, or placing his faith in material things. John Paul II is uh, encouraging us to bet or invest our lives on a relationship with God. It is through this relationship that we come to the full meaning of life. This Lent, John Paul II, challenges us to examine just where our faith truly lies, just which values we are subscribing to. Moving on to the third theme of suffering. Taking up one's cross and swimming against the current, or living counterculturally, involves its own challenges. It comes as no surprise to any of us here that suffering is a part of life. John Paul himself was no stranger to suffering and was well aware of the suffering in the world, especially that associated with living a life of Christian discipleship. John Paul canonized 482 people most of whom were martyrs. John Paul is well known for developing the church's teaching about suffering, especially in his apostolic letter, Salvifici Dolores. While acknowledging that ultimately suffering ultimately remains a mystery, he does explore ways it can begin to be understood theologically. For example, as explained in Salvifici Dolores, suffering, or weakness and emptying of oneself, serves as a means through which God can manifest God's power. John Paul states, those who share in Christ's suffering have before their eyes the paschal mystery of the cross and resurrection, in which Christ descends in a first phase to the ultimate limits of human weakness and impotence. Indeed, he dies nailed to the cross, but if at the same time in this weakness there is accomplished his lift But if at the same time in this weakness there is accomplished his lifting up, confirmed by the power of the resurrection, then this means that the weakness of all human sufferings are capable of being infused with the same power of God manifested in Christ's cross. In such a concept, to suffer means to become particularly susceptible, particularly open to the working of the salvific powers of God, offered to humanity in Christ, in him, God has confirmed his desire to act especially through suffering, which is man's weakness and emptying of self. And he wishes to make his power known precisely in this weakness and emptying of self. This, is also, this also explains the exhortation in the first letter of Peter. Yet if one suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but under, him, but under that name, let him glorify God, unquote. Perhaps more significantly, John Paul develops the concept of uniting our suffering to Christ's redemptive suffering. In doing so, our own suffering can take on meaning and purpose. Again, in Salvifici Dolores, he states, quote, the Redeemer suffered in place of man and for man. Every man has his own share in the redemption. Each one is also called to share in that suffering through which the redemption was accomplished. He is called to share in that suffering through which all human suffering has also been redeemed. In in bringing about the redemption through suffering, Christ also raised human suffering to the level of the redemption. Thus, each man in his suffering can also become a sharer in the redemptive suffering of Christ. In fact, as he neared death, John Paul II united his suffering with Christ as he united himself with all others who suffered. In his message to the participants in the rite of the Way of the Cross at the Colosseum in 2005, he states, quote, The adoration of the cross directs us to a commitment that we cannot shirk. The mission that Paul expressed in these words, quote, In my flesh I complete what is lacking in Christ's affliction, for the sake of his body, that is, the church. I also offer my sufferings so that God's plan may be completed and his word spread amongst the peoples. I, in turn, am close to all who are tried by suffering at this time. I pray for each one of them. Not only can we give meaning to our suffering by uniting it to Christ, suffering can also result in the release of love and self giving in the world when we reach out to those who suffer, not just through sympathy and compassion, but through actual action. Again, in Salvifici Dolores, he states, The parable of the Good Samaritan belongs to the gospel of suffering, where it indicates what the relationship of each of us must be towards our suffering neighbor. We are not allowed to pass by on the other side indifferently. We must stop beside him. Everyone who stops beside the suffering of another person, whatever form it may take, is a Good Samaritan. This stopping does not mean curiosity, but availability. It is like the opening of a certain interior disposition of the heart, which also has an emotional expression of its own. Therefore, one must cultivate this sensitivity of heart, which bears witness to compassion towards a suffering person. Sometimes this compassion remains the only or principal expression of our love for and solidarity with the sufferer. Nevertheless, the good Samaritan of Christ's parable does not stop at sympathy and compassion alone. They become for him an incentive to actions aimed at bringing help to the injured man. In a the word, then, a good Samaritan is one who brings help in suffering, whatever its nature may be. Unquote. According to John Paul, we are to see the face of Christ in those who suffer. Like Christ, we are to reach out to those whom society pushes to the margins. Our Lenten journey should move us to charity and to action. In his message to his general audience on Ash Wednesday in 2001, John Paul states, quote, the fruit of a courageous ascetical journey can only be a greater openness to the needs of our neighbor. Those who love the Lord cannot close their eyes to individuals and peoples who are tried by suffering and poverty. After contemplating the face of the crucified Lord, How could we not recognize Him and serve Him in those who are suffering and abandoned? Jesus Himself, who invites us to stay with Him, watching and praying, also asks us to love Him in our brothers and sisters, remembering that, quote, from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. The fruit of a Lent intensely lived will thus be a greater and more universal love, unquote. And as by means or uh, as a reflection for John Paul's theology of suffering. This Lent John Paul invites us to examine our own attitudes towards suffering. Do we try to avoid suffering at all costs? Some of you might be familiar with the film The Matrix. Some of you have seen the the, the premise of the film. It's been a few years since I've seen it. the world as we're experiencing it is a fake world that's just, it's computer-generated ideas. Computers have taken over the world. Um, so what we're experiencing are just illusions. But they're pleasant illusions. And there are a few people who break away from these computer-programmed thoughts and they're trying to fight, um, fight the computers who are using human beings um, as a source of energy to, to run the computers themselves. And I asked my students, I said, um, if you could live just in a world that was just pleasant thoughts, but really you were enslaved and you were being used as a source of energy for computers, but you're, you're having pleasant thoughts pumped in of ice cream and maybe a juicy steak or something, or you could know reality and fight to overthrow this oppression, which would you want? And 75% of students will say, I'd rather just have the pleasant thoughts pumped into my head. Um, John Paul is saying the opposite. Do we see Christ in those who suffer and enter into their suffering? Do we actually put our faith into action? I am always amazed how little attention is given to the final judgment Jesus depicts in Matthew 25. Whatsoever you do to the least of my people, those who suffer, those, that you do to me. This is the criteria Jesus says we'll be judged by. In our modern world, and even in our church, we, we sometimes we'd be hard-pressed to know it. What is our reaction to Christ who is suffering in the world around us? Moving on to our fourth point of conversion. To take up one's cross, to live counterculturally, and to live in solidarity with the suffering requires a turning, a conversion in our lives. As John Paul ex- explains, Lent is a journey of conversion. In this general audience of Ash Wednesday 2001, he states, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. From Matthew 26. Let us be guided by these words of the Lord in a committed effort of conversion and spiritual renewal. In daily life, there is a risk of being absorbed in material concerns and interests. Lent is an appropriate time for, reawakening, for a reawakening of genuine faith, for salutary renewal of our relationship with God and for a more generous gospel commitment. The means available to us are the same as always, but we must use them more intensely in these weeks. Prayer, fasting and penance, as well as almsgiving, that is, the sharing of what we have with the needy. This personal and community journey of asceticism can be particularly difficult at times because of a secularized environment in which we live. But for this very reason, our effort must be stronger and more determined, John Paul describes the conversion required as a sort of personal transfiguration. In his homily of of March 11, 2001, he states, quote, this is a great mystery for the life of the church since we should not think that the transfiguration will happen only after death. The saints' lives and the martyrs' witness teach us that if the transfiguration of the body will occur at the end of time with the resurrection of the flesh that of the heart takes place now on this earth with the help of grace we ask ourselves what are transfigured men and women like the answer is very beautiful they are people who follow christ in living and dying who are inspired by him and let themselves let themselves be imbued with the grace that he gives gives us, whose food is to do the Father's will, who let themselves be led by the Spirit, who prefer nothing to Christ's kingdom, who love others to the point of shedding their blood for them, who are ready to give the, Him their all without expecting anything in return, who in a word, live loving and die forgiving. Unquote. Thus, not will we only be transformed in the next, transformed in the next life, we are called to be transfigured into people of self-giving love in this world. For a reflection, I would offer often conversion to Christ can mean detachment or letting go of that which holds us back from deeper relationship with God. What are we afraid of letting go of in our lives? The act of letting go can be scary. Often we are more comfortable with what we know than with the idea of leaving something behind in the hope of reaching out to something better. In short, sometimes we don't want to be free from that which holds us back. And there's a character in the movie Shawshank Redemption. um, And I don't remember his name, but he's an elderly character. um, And every, he's up for parole say every five or 10 years. And the day before he's up for parole, he always hits another inmate. Why, because he says I know what to expect in life here in prison. I don't know what to expect from life out there in the world. And that's just the exact contrast to the life of the character Andy, the main character of the film, um, who kind of exemplifies the the quote on uh, the advertisements for the film, says, fear can hold you prisoner, hope can set you free. I teach at a Franciscan university. I think of Francis surrendering the wealth of his family in a a radical act, he stripped himself of his clothing in front of the bishop in the whole town to return all his wealth, all his material possessions back to his father so that he could follow Christ with his whole heart. Francis turned from something in order to turn to Christ. Our conversion might not be as radical as Francis's, but if we approach the final days of Lent and as we prepare to enter into the mysteries of the Triduum, we can ask ourselves what we need to be what we need to turn from in order to turn more fully to Christ. What are the parts of our lives that need to be transfigured? Finally, our last theme. John Paul II points out that if we take up our cross, live counterculturally, respond to the suffering of others, and undergo a conversion of heart, we will share in the resurrection, new life, and victory of Christ. No matter how crazy the world in our lives might get, pain and suffering do not have the final word. In his address at the way of the cross to the Colosseum in 2002, John Paul states, In the acute pain of the suffering servant, we already hear the triumphant cry of the risen Lord. Christ on the cross is the king of the new people ransomed from the burden of sin and death. However twisted and confused the the course of history may appear, we know that, by walking in the footsteps of the crucified Christ, we shall attain the goal. Amid the conflicts of a world often dominated by selfishness and hatred, we as believers are called to proclaim the victory of love. Today, Good Friday, we testify to the victory of Christ crucified." Unquote. This is why, John Paul explains, Good Friday is good. One of the strongest and most memorable messages of John Paul's pontificate, I think, was that we don't have to be afraid. We are in the hands of the victorious Christ. In his homily for the Easter Vigil 2001, he states, On this night, death gives way to life for you too, as for all the baptized. Sin is erased and a new life begins. Persevere to the end in fidelity and love and do not be afraid when difficulties arise. For Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. And John Paul is quoting from Romans chapter six there. Similarly, in his book, Crossing the Threshold of Hope, John Paul II states, at the end of the second millennium, and I would add at the beginning of the 21st, we need perhaps more than ever the words of Christ risen, be not afraid peoples and nations of the entire world need to hear these words. Their conscience needs to grow in the certainty that someone exists who holds in his hands the destiny of the passing world, someone who holds the keys to death in the nether world, someone who is the alpha and the omega n- omega of human history, be it the individual or collective history. In this someone is love, love that became man, love crucified and risen, love unceasingly present among men. It is Eucharistic love. It is the infinite source of communion. He alone can give the ultimate assurance when he says, be not afraid. As a way of reflection. After challenging us this Lenten season, John Paul II leaves us with a great message of hope. We don't have to be afraid of what it is or what is, to, what, what is or what is to come. We are in good hands. I think that this is related to John Paul II's contribution to the fall of communism in Eastern Europe. Perhaps the most significant step taken by John Paul in this regard was to suggest that the world did not have to be the way that it seemed it was destined to be. Oppression and injustice can be overcome. Back in the late 80s at the University of Dayton in 1989, I was in a class entitled Communism Theory and Practice in the fall of 1989. If you had asked me at the beginning of the semester if I thought that East Berliners would be traveling freely through the wall to the west by the end of the semester, I would have thought you were crazy. But as the semester progressed and our textbooks literally became irrelevant through the course of what the events at that time, And we turned to newspapers and other periodicals to keep up with the rapidly changing state of affairs behind the, we, we turned to newspapers and periodicals to keep up with the rapidly changing state of affairs behind the Iron Curtain. Things very unexpectedly had changed. John Paul teaches us that we can have a vision of a renewed world. Obstacles that we face in life as individuals and as a world community can be overcome. All things are possible with God. Do not be afraid. And just for a conclusion, to wrap up my presentation, I would like to conclude with one final quote from John Paul II. As we look to the remainder of Holy Week, John Paul II challenges us to place ourselves in the drama of the events we commemorate this week. In his homily for Palm Sunday 2002, he states, quote, however, faith in Christ can never be taken for granted. The reading of his passion sets us before Christ, living in his church. The the Easter mystery that we will relive during the holy days of Holy Week is always present. Today we are contemporaries of the Lord, and like the multitude multitude in Jerusalem, like the disciples and the women, we are called to decide if we are to be with him or flee or just be spectators at his death. Every year in Holy Week the curtain rises once again on the great scene in which the definitive drama is decided, not only for one generation, but for all humanity and for each person. I would like to leave us with that final thought, that final question. As we enter into the mysteries of Holy Week, where do we see ourselves standing in relationship to Christ as events unfold? Where do we stand in relationship to Christ in our lives? That is the question John Paul II would suggest we take time to ask ourselves every Lent and all through our lives. Are we following Christ in the way of the cross? For, after all, that really is, as John Paul II would point out, the path to life at its fullest, to a life worth living. Thank you very much.
0: This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University
1: on iTunes U please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu.